0: Welcome to Moving On. Here you will get expert information, tips, and most importantly, the tools to moving on to a healthy, happy, and thriving life that you want to be living. Letting go of whatever is holding you back, whether you are in an unhealthy relationship or learning how to be in a healthy one, or maybe you are in a job that you've been dying to move on from. Learn to let go of what's holding you back and become the thriving, healthy, and happy person that is inside you. Welcome to Moving On. Hey,
1: everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Moving On. And as usual, I have a wonderful guest with me who is going to share his journey and how it has taken him to where he is in his life at this this point, both personally and professionally. So, today I have with me Cute Blackson. Cute, welcome to my show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: You are quite welcome. So, let me tell you guys a little bit about him in case you've never heard of him before. I am sure after this, you will be very happy to have been introduced to him today. So, Cute Blackson is a beloved inspirational speaker and transformational teacher. He speaks at countless events he organizes around the world, as well as outside events, including AFEST, YPO which is the Young Presidents Organization, and EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. He's a member of the Transformational Leadership Council, a select group of 100 of the world's foremost authorities in the personal development industry. Winner of the 2019 Unity New Thought Walden Award, Blackson is widely considered a next generation leader in the field of personal development. His mission is simple. To awaken and inspire people across the planet to access inner freedom, live authentically, and fulfill their life purpose. That is wonderful. So thank you, cute, once again for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me again.
1: Sure. So I have a question. When and, and I like to start off with this just to <clears> get <throat> an idea of you know who you were and how you came to sure. where you are. So as a kid, uh, you know, a young child, what would you say? You were thinking, okay, when I grow up, this is what I want to be. Like, what for you was that?
2: Look, I really don't know if there was anything specific as a really young kid. All I knew was I was a very empathetic kid. And so I felt people suffering very deeply. And I would feel people's pain. And there was a part of me that wanted to do something about it. I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know how that would play out. I just knew, how, how do I help people? How, how do I alleviate the suffering? And so um, maybe my, my, my upbringing was a little different in a sense. I mean, I think we all think that to a degree. I think maybe mine was a little different, but I didn't know it was that different just because, like my first memories as a young kid was um, being a chubby kid and mm-hmm. getting teased all the time. But also in that, um, one of my first memories was literally seeing a crippled woman crawling on the floor and she picks up the sand that this man walks on, wipes it on her face and stands up. And so this was one of my first memories. And so week after week, I grew up seeing blind people see and deaf people hear and people stand up out of wheelchairs. So this really imprinted as a young boy in my consciousness, the man who said she picked up to, Let's say a miracle, right? This man who essentially picked up was my father. He built 300 churches in Ghana, West Africa, spiritual churches. Uh, he built a huge church, 5,000 people every Sunday in London, which is where I grew up. And I remember literally every weekend, every few days, I'd be with him and somebody would come in in a wheelchair and he would say to this woman in a wheelchair, why are you in this wheelchair? You're not sick. Stand up. And this woman would say, but I haven't walked in 10 years. And he would say, do you believe? If you believe, stand up. Put his hand on them. They will stand up. Somebody would come in with crutches, Tracy. And he would be like, why do you have crutches? Throw them away. But I haven't walked in two years. I have. The doctor said, do you? B-? Boom. And they would start walking. And so he was considered a miracle man of Africa. So as a young boy, talking about well, what did I want to do, I grew up with this kind of unusual possibility. I say kind of because... As a kid, I didn't know this was unusual. I thought this was your experience and everyone was having this experience. So a blessing might be that I didn't think it was that unusual or different or extraordinary. But looking back now, I think, wow, that was that was a bit different. And so I grew up with the sense that everything was possible. And at age eight, I started speaking in front of my father's churches. My father basically said, my son is speaking. Uh, no discussion with me. Just my son is speaking this Sunday. So speak, and that it wasn't like I wanted to be a speaker. It was one Sunday through through me on uh, in front of the audience, five thousand people. Words started coming out of my mouth. I had no idea what I was saying, and that began a whole relationship with speaking. And every month, every two months, every few months, I would speak in front of my father's church, and people were inspired. and And when I was fourteen. Again, I was actually ordained as a minister in my father's ministry as a fourteen-year-old kid, and so you know I didn't—I I don't know if I really had time to think about like, well, what do I want to do, and mm-hmm. what would I do, and do I want to be a fireman? Do I, I just—all I saw was service and miracles and being, you know, part of my father's organization and traveling. And and so when I was fourteen, I was given the mandate to take over my father's spiritual organization hundreds of thousands of followers in Africa, literally maybe 300,000 at the time, five, six, 7,000 every Sunday in church in South London. And it just all of a sudden he announces my son is taking over. He is my successor. And I'm thinking, I remember when it was announced, my heart sank on stage in front of 5,000 people because something, what I did know was something didn't feel right about that. I wanted to help people so rationally, like mentally, I was trying to convince myself that, no, maybe this is something I want, maybe this is something I want to do, but in my gut, it just didn't align. But I was too afraid to tell the truth. I was my fear was if I speak my truth to my father, then I'm going to lose his love, I'm going to lose the relationship, I'm going to lose everyone's love. And I think like many people, I, I allowed fear to hijack my truth and I didn't speak up, I didn't say anything, I got ordained. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my fear was, well, if I tell my father at 14, I'm not taking over, he's going to ask me, so, well, what do you want to do? And I have no idea what I want to do, other than it's not quite this. And so for four years, I got ordained, everyone's happy but me. And it took me four years, four years of depression, four years of inner conflict, four years of questioning, four years of guilt, four years of just internal turmoil. But when I turned 18, I still didn't know like what I want to do exactly. But what started happening, Tracy, from age, age nine, Mm -hmm. we'll tell you a bit about me as a kid, age nine, uh, I would sneak into my father's bookshelf in the middle of the night in his office and there were literally a thousand books, self self self-help, homeopathy, meditation, you know, psychology, spirituality, Eastern mystics, Western, Deepak Chopra, Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, Marion Williamson too, Kristen Murti, Osha. So I began to become really obsessed trying to figure out like life and what is the nature of life? What is the nature of reality? Who am I? Where do we come from? And You know, I got, I, I got a scholarship to a very prestigious school. Uh, it was free. We got a scholarship because we didn't have a lot of money, but everyone in this school, they seem to have every reason to be happy and their parents seem to have every, every reason to be happy, but they were miserable. And yet in my father's church, people didn't have very much kind of uneducated folks seem to have every reason to not be happy, but seem really generous and happy and celebrating and fulfilled. And so this began this kind of questioning, like, what is life? And what is, what is the purpose of life? Is it just to wake up and make money and have mm-hmm. babies, buy a house, go on vacation and then die? And so, I became obsessed with books because I wanted to find these answers. And so from eight to 18, I read hundreds of books just trying to figure out the nature of life and why we're here and what what the purpose is. And when I turned 18, I looked into my future, a pivotal moment for me, and it was very difficult because there there was so much expectation for who I was going to be and hopes and dreams and pinned on me, which was a lot of pressure as a kid. And I looked into my future and I saw I could follow the expected path. I could take over my father's operation, be successful. But as I projected into that future, age 20, age 30, age 40, age 50, age 60, I felt like a complete, I felt like I was committing soul suicide, mm-hmm. that, that it wasn't a line. And then all I knew was something, my soul, was calling me to America. My soul was calling me to the US because all of the authors I'd read lived Mm -hmm. in Southern California. They lived in Newport Beach and San Diego and LA and San Francisco. And I thought this is the Mecca. And so as a kid, I started seeing, oh, maybe there's a way to inspire people that doesn't have to be through religion or church and people are doing it in hotel rooms and you know, seminars of what is this thing? And so they all in in LA and Southern California. So Mm -hmm. my soul just guided me to come to the US and I was just following my soul without Mm -hmm. any clear directive. And sometimes, you know, what your soul guides you to do doesn't make sense. But at that moment I had that conversation with my father at 18, which was the most difficult conversation of my life up until that point and told him I'm not taking over. We didn't speak for two years which was devastating. And long story short, left everything behind, renounced everything, much to the disappointment of a lot of people. And long story short, won a green card in the lottery yeah. and came to the US with, with $800, two suitcases, knew no one, landed in LA as an 18 and a half year old kid, just following wow. a dream. And at that point, the dream became I want to go into the field of self-help and inspire people. And so I just went and found teachers and mentors and that I could keep going, but that that's a little bit of the answer.
1: That is really, I mean, I have so many questions too, because it was so interesting to me that your dad felt like you could take over for him at 14. So you must've been very self-possessed. Like there must've been something about you where, I mean, a lot of 14 year olds don't, portray that they yeah. know what's even going on so i'm just totally curious like what was it that made your dad decide that that was what he wanted you to do at that point
2: i don't know i mean we never really spoke about it other than mm-hmm. you know because i was speaking from age 8 to 14 and i, I was a very mature kid mm-hmm. like i i would go to school do very well come home and then do my homework and from you know 6 to 11 p.m at night i was Reading self-help books and meditating, and you know, then I yes. would sneak sneak into my father's church in the middle of the night because we lived literally in a small apartment behind attached to my father's church. I would sneak in, and I didn't know that my parents knew, but I would sneak in with the lights off, and I would, you know, from four, from twelve to eighteen, I would give seminars to empty chairs, speaking, so imagining thousands of people were being inspired, and so I think they. They saw he saw, he must have seen that. Maybe he had some intuition. I don't, maybe it's part of part of his vision for my life. Mm-hmm. But um I I would say that I was a different kind of kid, you know, yeah. d- d- just, just to be honest. Um, and in a certain way, I fit in with all the regular kids in school, but there was a part of my life and myself that no kid, no one in school knew. So on another level, it felt very lonely. And I felt very much an outsider, even though I was an insider at the same time. And uh, yeah, it was it an was interesting childhood. But I, but, I, but, I, but I had to get honest with myself, Tracy. I had to get really honest. And um, I saw that I would never be truly happy living someone else's life that you can never be truly happy and fulfilled being someone that you're not and when i really got real and honest with myself because i think at that time i i I was rash like we do as human beings we rationalize well maybe i can and maybe if i can just fit myself and you know it's still helping people and at at 18 i got just really honest and i thought Mm -hmm. if i lie to myself now Mm -hmm. in order to get the love from my father that I think I want. I'm going to have to lie to myself for the rest of my entire life in order to keep the love that I'm lying right now to get. And that, I, I just, I think there was a, it wasn't necessarily a conscious thing, but I think there was an intuitive knowing in my soul more than even a conscious that just knew that it wasn't, that I had a different path. And I felt such a strong, pull of my soul calling me it was just this calling that made no sense other than go here and that's why i just tell people look don't compromise or negotiate with your soul you don't have to know where you're going to get to where you need to be but there is an intelligence that knows and i believe and i'm a firm believer i've i've lived it in my in my life not through theory but i believe that if you follow your soul if you follow your soul without compromise that pure essential knowing inside that pulls you, even if it's scary, you will always end up in the right place, even though the route that you take may not be the one that you most expect. And that's kind of how I live my life, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. it's been a been an amazing ride.
1: That's awesome. Um, Because it's like you were talking, and it was making me think about, my God, you know, a lot of people end up in jobs end up in, you know, going to school, and let's say becoming, something that their parents wanted them to become and so it says a lot about who you were at that early time in your life and so you know coming forward so you moved to la which that's where (laughs) i am too so
2: oh yes (laughs) the crazy amazing place
1: yeah it is it definitely is but um so you came here and you started going to whoever you could as a mentor as a guru as whoever but you know when you were doing this, did you find any of this challenging at all? I mean, was any of this challenging? Did you ever feel like you were doing things and going? Okay, I don't, like you said, I don't know why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I feel called to do it. But was it all easy? Because I don't want people to think it wasn't
2: let's get real. Yeah. I think sometimes people have the sense that when you follow your purpose, and when you follow your soul's calling, ah, you know, sometimes books market it this way, just Oh, yeah. Leap and your next net will appear. Everything, the unfolding synchronicities of the universe and the cosmos is like, hell no. Sometimes when you follow your purpose, that's when shit hits the fan. When you follow your purpose, that's when the real challenges begin. And many times people follow their purpose and the challenges and the shit hits the fan, the challenges begin and they start thinking they're actually on the wrong path but actually you're on the right path and those challenges aren't necessarily signs that you're on the wrong path those challenges are signs that you're on the right path because your soul has to go through the soul test and the challenges to me this is the universe's way of developing you and 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 the, and 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 making you develop the mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual muscle to be able to prepare you to for, for, to to fulfill the vision and mission that you sense and feel inside. And so those challenges are really a blessing, even though we're not able to see it in the moment. And so if you feel if so long as you're following your soul and you're facing challenges, I would say keep going because when I came to the U.S. for the first time, eight hundred dollars, knew no one in the country. It was like I landed. Didn't have a clue. This was pre Google and internet. Didn't have a clue where I was going. I asked a shuttle bus guy, "Take me somewhere safe and cheap." Dropped me in Venice Beach twenty, you know, two years ago, whenever it was. Dropped me in Venice Beach. You know, it was crazy then. And so I cried for probably the first three weeks to the first month, wondering what the hell am I doing. And, and I remember calling my mother on the payphone. And this was the closest person to me, my my biggest cheerleader. I'm her only son thinking maybe she'll say, come home. And I call her up crying and she says, don't come back. Keep going. I believe in you. Probably if she didn't say that I would have run home. Right. And and so the first period of time, devastatingly challenging. I wanted to quit. I wanted to give up. I wondered if I was crazy. I wondered why the hell am I doing this? I had $800. I took $250, moved into a one room, not even a, I can't even call it a studio. It's a one room with with a toilet and a shower. I guess it was a studio in Koreatown, which wasn't the best place at the time. Um, eating bread for a week, literally stealing food from supermarkets. You know, washing floors of you know one dollar a dish Chinese restaurants just to function and survive. And as challenging as difficult, as much as I wanted to like quit and give up and thinking, what am I doing? There was a deeper part of me. I'll be honest, that knew I was on the right path. And that deep knowing is what kept me going. When This is what I found. When we do things just to do them or goals that we pursue because other people want us to or because we think that's what's going to just make us money or we see other people doing it and we're like, well, well, I can do that too. But it's not truly aligned with your soul and you're just doing it just to do it. When you face those challenges, likely you won't have the internal resilience and, and 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 fortitude to continue because many times that goal isn't authentic. As much as I wanted to give up and my ego personality wanted to give up, there was something in me that knew, no, I'm, I'm on the right path. If I wasn't on the right path, I probably would have given up, but I knew I was on the right path and that's what kept me going. And I just took it you know, step by step by step by step. But there were many moments I wanted to give up along the way. That, that's for sure. And it's challenging. And it's difficult. But I think that it's those difficulties that prepare look at Nelson Mandela, followed his purpose. Mm-hmm. That took that took him to 27 years in prison. Should yep. he have not spent that 27 years in prison? What if he didn't spend that 27 years in prison? Would he have developed the mental emotional, psychological, sp- compassion, forgiveness, vision. I don't think he would have cooked. It was like the cosmic chef. I don't think he would have cooked and marinated to the level of his consciousness that was then able to come out and transmit the vision and, and energy that he was able to do. And so it, it was very challenging in the beginning. That That's for right.
1: sure. Well, I think in, you know, my philosophy is that your circumstances should not define you. They should not ever define what you choose to do unless you're hanging off a cliff, like mm-hmm. you're literally in a life-threatening mm-hmm. situation, right? Otherwise, it is about the internal. And so for you, and even Nelson Mandela, because I always use I actually use him as an example quite a bit because I look at somebody who defied his circumstances. He didn't let being in jail 27 years define if he was going to be okay. Or you know what he was going to be and so for you it sounds like you've developed that to some degree where you were you know very much listening to your soul taking these chances Mm -hmm. doing things that made no sense and you know now you found yourself you know you're in la you're doing what you can to make a living and so you know to me it's what did you let define you at that point what did you let Mm -hmm. um you know, guide you besides, you know, listening to your soul. But what else? Like, you know, let's say you, you went to a closed door. Did you wait for the door to open? Did you knock on the door? Like, what did you do?
2: Um, so, so I had no, You know, I didn't have very much money. Right. And I had no college education and I knew no one in the U S literally no one. And didn't have any contacts. I mean, the list goes on. And so um, I remember this is, this was a defining moment in my life when I sat in my tiny studio, feeling sorry for myself, feeling kind of like a victim, basically. And I remember having a pity party, woe is me, the world doesn't love me, the world's not fair, God doesn't love me, my father doesn't support me, if I had a dad that supported me like other people, you know, all of this stuff. And, you know, to a degree, some of it was true. I mean, there are some facts, like, I didn't start with anything. And, and I remember just sitting there feeling completely sorry for myself. And I don't know what it was, but it was this enlightening moment that i heard this this sort of it was like a voice but a feeling that basically it was like the universe said nobody owes you anything nobody owes you anything life doesn't owe you anything god doesn't owe you anything your parents don't owe you anything your father doesn't owe you anything he's given you life and you and 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 inside of you it was like this epiphany, like, like you know you know it up here, but it was an inner experience. And, and it was the sense of like, you have health, your hands, your body, physical, your mental faculties, or you, like you've been given everything you need. And, and in that moment, I realized that one thing I was going to have to give up was any sense of entitlement or blame. That was a moment where something shifted internally inside of me in terms of taking like a profound level of self-responsibility and I saw that I could be justified in my righteousness of how the world's not fair and this and that and stay stuck or I looked at people who were in far worse circumstances than me that somehow turned their life around and so that was a pivotal moment and that was a shift and so after being in the U.S. like a year, two years, I had this dream to to, to have a TV show. And all of my excuses, I don't know anyone, you know how how L.A. is. You have of to course. know people in Hollywood and you can't go knocking on doors. And so I started, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be fully responsible. And so I started reading all of these books trying to understand how Hollywood works and reading books of visionaries like Spielberg and what have you. And so literally what shifted was I got this vision to do a TV show. I wanted to do a talk show kind of like new generation Oprah. And up until that moment, I would kind of been like waiting for someone to give me an opportunity. Like Oprah is going to knock on my door at right. my apartment in Koreatown. And I thought, nobody's going to like, no one owes me anything. No one is coming to save me. And when that shifted, that changed everything. And I literally began knocking on doors, mm-hmm. uh, knocking on doors, literally walking into caa walking into william morris walking into you know restaurants i mean it was a bit extreme knocking on i mean i tracked down billionaires i tracked down steven spielberg and pushed myself to 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 manifest this vision and 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 that that was a really profound shift you know where where rather than just waiting for someone to choose me i just decided in that moment to choose myself and that shifted a lot, but I mean, I, I could keep going. But yeah, but I'm totally rejected.
1: curious though. When you were pushing, right, where you're like knocking on doors, was anybody uh, responsive to that?
2: I've received so much. Here, here's the truth: I received mm-hmm. so much rejection. Mm-hmm. I mean, I received so much rejection. It's a, it's it's it's, hilar- it's hilarious. I was, but but I was also I did a bit unconventionally. You know, when you walk into ICM, and like I want to meet with the you know Jeff Berg. Uh, I'd like to meet with Richard Lovett of C- CAA. They look at you like, you are crazy. And I would go into movie premieres and sneak in. You know, I snuck into Titanic movie premiere because they were all going to be there. And I would literally pitch people in the in the movie premiere, in the party. And I was laughed out. Here's the truth. I was laughed out of offices. I was thrown out of offices. I was basically spat at. You know, I was ridiculed. I, I mean, the rejection was, I think back, it was very, very, very humbling. But I had the dream and I had a vision. And I thought, well, if I don't do it, who, Oprah's mm-hmm. not knocking on my door. I, I, I'm not famous. I don't have money. I'm not. And so what I did have was soul. And so uh, I'll never forget uh, one time I, I, I tracked down Steven Spielberg. And... Uh, I spoke to a, a producer that was a friend of mine who knew Steven Spielberg. And I said, would you introduce me to him? He said, I'm sorry, I can't do that because you know my reputation's on the line. And you know, But he said, look, you're a very interesting young kid. There is a friend of mine who who, who plays, his kid plays soccer with Steven Spielberg. Speak to him, he might give you some ideas. I called this guy and I said, look, I have this vision for TV shows. Spielberg just started DreamWorks. I, he would do the show because he was a little bit of an outsider. He said, look, I can't introduce you to Spielberg. This is this is kid, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you where I said, at least tell me where Spielberg plays, his kid plays play soccer on Saturday. So he said, okay, but you can't tell anyone that I'm telling you. And he tells me, it's in it Brentwood by the post office, da, 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 da. this was years <laughs> ago. It's not there anymore. And so I dress up in my only suit. I have one suit. And I go there on a Saturday morning with a King Coast printed folder as a press kit and a video VHS tape of myself that I did one, one uh, thing on TV with a handwritten four page handwritten letter to Spielberg. The first week he's not there. I go back the second week. I see Steven Spielberg there with his wife. I hide behind the tree. This was a make or break moment. And literally Spielberg walks out. I jump out and I start pitching Spielberg. There's 20 people around. Everyone's like, what's about to happen? And long story short, Um, you know, things like this, I'll never forget. Literally Spielberg looks at me and he says, you remind me of myself when I was a kid, let me check your stuff out. Never thought anything would happen, but I was really, you know, I was happy that Mm -hmm. regardless of what happened, I did. I took the risk. You know, to me, life is a risk. If you don't take the risk, there's no chance of opportunities. You know, there's no chance of manifestation. To me, it's a risk to be yourself. It takes courage to be yourself. It's and I think many times, We stay on the sidelines. We know what we want to do. We stay on the sidelines because if we don't take action, if we don't pursue our goals, dreams, and desires, we can always have the future fantasy of the possibility of the vision without having to take the risk of it worked or it didn't work. And so for me, I took the risk. I invite everyone to take the risk because in the process of the manifestation of your goal or your dream, whether you manifest it or not, you will grow the dream and the goal will take you on a journey of growth and evolution, and it will force you to learn things about yourself and grow and become more. And to me, that process of who you become is the gift, is the manifestation, that next version of yourself. And that manifestation and that version of yourself that you become, that version of yourself that you become is the person that is more capable of holding the vision for the next level. And so I got a phone call from Steven Spielberg his office two Mm -hmm. days later, and they set up a meeting for me. And, you know, I mean, so many amazing things happen. The show didn't happen with with that, but that led to other things. And But the the, the rejection I faced was profound. Mm -hmm. But what I kept telling myself, two things. Number one, I kept focusing on the vision and the impact that I wanted to have. Mm -hmm. Because when I was a kid, I would speak to the empty chairs and see souls being inspired. I kept seeing them, and that pulled me through. That was one. Number two, I would just tell myself that these people just didn't see the vision I saw yet. And if they didn't see the vision I saw yet, then how, how, how would they know? And so that pulled me through. So I, on that level, I didn't, I didn't really take it personally, but it was, it, it, it was challenging for sure.
1: I can see where it would be. And so my curiosity is, I know you know that you talked to Spielberg and all of that, but what did this do for you as far as your growth? Like, who did you become? Or, you know, I, I don't even want to say that because I usually don't say things like that. Like, who do you become? Because you're already you. But it's yeah. more like what parts you let go of or what parts you discard because, you know, a lot of it is other people, what their ideas are, who you should be, blah, blah, blah. So, what did you learn, I say, about yourself through that?
2: You know, it, it was a, it was probably a two year intensive process where I professionally, my job professionally became manifesting a TV show. And uh, in the process, I was sleeping on friends' couches. In the process, I was barely making it, but I was so, um, What's the word? Intent on this TV show happening. Um, one thing I will say is the TV show didn't happen. And I would say one of the greatest gifts. It, let, let me back up. I met these two managers. They, ma- they managed Michael Jackson, Mariah Carey, Leonardo DiCaprio, Backstreet Boys, J-Lo. They wanted to manage me. They said, we're going to make you a star. We're going to make you huge. Everything that I wanted to have happen was right in front of me. Everything, after all of this rejection of two years, hundreds, these two people finally saw what I saw. And they're like, sign this piece of paper, bring it back tomorrow, management contract. This is gonna be huge. Everything my ego wanted, it's happening. I go home and I meditate. The next day I come back and all I hear in this internal alignment of no. Now you have to understand this was so confusing and frustrating because I wanted this thing to happen. But my soul is saying no. And this is the same internal guidance that guided me away from my father that guided me to the green car that guided me to the US and this same frequency resonance is saying no. And so I knew shit, if I don't listen to this, probably it's not something's not going to align. And right. so I, ter- I turned this opportunity down, mad at mad at God, mad at life, but but I just knew that like it doesn't make sense to me right now. But I have to listen to this path. That put me into about who did it become. That put me into a deep kind of depression, confusion, inner turmoil, again, inner questioning, because everything I thought I wanted was now kind of happening. And yet my guidance was moving me in a different direction. And so it made me, it made me surrender in a profound way. And it made me humble myself, surrender everything I thought about myself, thought about who I was, thought about what I wanted, because I just got to the point, that's when I packed everything up, traveled to India, said, look, I'm not, I don't freaking know anything anymore. And I just threw my hands up and i said to the universe i don't know like i don't know what my life is supposed to be mm-hmm. i thought it was going to be this but i don't know and i think that to be honest that was the that was the death of my ego's grip of running my life i had reached the end of my own sort of egoic way of just like manifesting And I got to the point where I just gave up and I finally said this, this, this thing where I said, universe, whatever, whatever it is that I'm supposed to be in this lifetime, whatever it is that life is seeking to express through me, just let it be revealed because I've tried it my way. Yeah. Hasn't quite worked. And so show me. And that was the beginning of a journey, the beginning of surrender. And so, I think sometimes when your dreams don't manifest, even though from the ego's perspective it can seem like the worst thing, from the ego's perspective, we're not able to see the the infinite possibilities of what is seeking to happen. And it can look terrible, but it, it's a it's, it's actually a blessing from a whole other perspective of the soul. And so that that took me. Down a path, and I think had I not gone on that journey of like wild pursuit, that journey—I don't know if this makes sense—but that journey allowed me to burn out a certain egoic drives yeah. in a very intensive way, to the point where I said, "Okay, I surrender. Like, show me, show me what is highest for my life." And that's that that's what happened. And I don't know, had I not just burnt things out that intensely, I don't know if I would have gotten to that point at that point of my life.
1: I think that's pretty impressive in and I'm not saying this in a way like, oh my gosh, but really most of us, you know, we operate on ego and we don't think about how much the ego is in control of dreams and you know, in half of our life goals are about the ego, you know. For sure. Yeah. And so for you, obviously, you've come forward from that time, because that was many years ago that this happened, yes, right? Yes, yeah. So, so you know, from that point forward up till now, how has it served you to have left your ego behind or to at least for the most part, let's say, have left your ego behind?
2: Yeah, I think it was more a shift in relationship to ego <laughs> mm-hmm. and and a shift in the ego's sort of being the, the, the factor that. Is running my life because i think in many ways our goals can sometimes be projections of unmet needs from childhood and and what have you like if i wasn't enough so if i can finally like get this tv show and be famous drive the lamborghini you know get a, a zillion win that oscar then i'm gonna be enough and so um how has it served me um I would just say that life has taken on a different quality. And it's certainly the last 15, 20 years hasn't unfolded exactly the way I thought. But in many ways, I realized if certain things didn't happen and I didn't make that shift, then I wouldn't be where I am today. And so many of the amazing things that have unfolded and happened that have just unfolded and manifested uh, a way better than I thought and things that I could never have planned. And so I think for me, my relationship with life is what shifted from a much more, what's the word, force, manipulation, make shit happen, way of like imposing will onto life to make it something and to a much more open and fluid and receptive, you know, that the, the ability to allow life, I think what it shifted is the willingness and ability to allow life to lead me. And I think when we're able to do that, like, wow, what is life seeking to unfold versus life is going to be this way. And I think when we're caught up, when I'm caught up in making life fit a preconceived idea based on the ego's conditioning and attaching to that then there's a tremendous amount of suffering tremendous amount of resistance a tremendous amount of frustration tremendous amount of anxiety and so i think the shift has been allowing life to unfold allowing life to lead me and becoming much more of a follower of life like wh- where is the energy going and 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 so it's it's unfolded a way of living for me that is more fluid,
0: mm-hmm. and,
2: and 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 like one of my heroes is a guy called Bruce Lee, and and he says one of my favorite quotes is like "be like water." Oh yeah, <laughs> you put water into that, water flows. I'm like, ah, that's what he was talking about, and so I I, I love that quote. Twenty years ago, I didn't really understand it, and over the years, I'm like, oh, and 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 so living in a much more surrendered way is really what's unfolded and, and Mm -hmm. living in alignment with life. I think, and I think when we do, I found that life tends to unfold in ways that are way better than we can even plan for ourselves.
1: I definitely agree with you. I think that life tends to expand because I think it's surrender. And then I think it's curiosity as well.
2: For sure. Yep. Curiosity is key Mm
0: -hmm.
2: in so many ways. You know when we're locked in ego we're not curious we we, we think we know or when something happens like let's say relationship happens we think we know what it is and we immediately attach to that knowing as a form of control and safety or when something doesn't happen we make a meaning up about what why it didn't happen and we think oh this is why why it didn't happen we're no longer curious and so i think absolutely the curiosity is an openness and the curiosity is a Humble willingness to not know what it is, but to allow life to show us. And I think that's when we don't impose limitations onto an experience or limitations onto an, a, a situation. Then we're truly available to the unlimitedness of life showing itself to us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I totally agree with you. Um, I tend to live this way. And one of the things that I think is really important is not to have a preconceived notion. Yes. of what you mean when you say the unlimited, because they think people are very afraid to let go of what their ego wants. And therefore, when you speak of unlimited, that's kind of, that's the unknown. That's very scary to a lot of people, scary. that uncertainty.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's scary. You know, and, and, and I think it can seem scary. Um, but I think our ability to dance, look, e- even when we think we know, I think many times even our knowing is just the illusion of knowing. Because even when we think we know, we don't really know. Like the times when I thought, ah, oh, i met my soulmate, and she's the one, and I'm sure she's the one. I thought I knew, and it it, it wasn't. And so it was just the illusion of knowing. You know, I remember when I'm... yeah, you know, and, and Anyway, so, so so I think that curiosity is so important. You know, that curiosity is... So, but what I will say is I, I really do sense and feel that surrender is also like it feels hard, it can feel scary, it can feel difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and but really, it's our natural state. Yeah, It's our natural state. It's just that all the ways that we've been conditioned from childhood, consciously, and unconsciously to self protect and not feel the pain to get love validation and approval, you know, to deal with our parents, and we've learned to contort ourselves into certain shapes that we've now contracted and become this, this this version of ourselves ego. Now we identify this version of ourselves as ego thinking this is who we are. And so ego's job is to reinforce its identity and existence and protect ourselves, to make sure that we don't get hurt again. And so it, it, it's kind of like we've become normalized to resistance. We've become normalized to like, like yeah. I'm, holding, I'm holding a pen right now, making a fist. We've become normalized to holding so tightly to life and ourselves as a way of avoiding pain and keeping ourselves safe that it feels normal. So letting go is actually, is it, so natural. It just the opposite has has felt more normal because we've been conditioned to hold on and it can feel scary because for our perceived sense of self, ego to let go and to trust and to open to the unknown and to be curious and not hold on rigidly like, this is what it is, this is what it isn't, can feel threatening to our sense of who we believe ourselves to be. And, and, And so I think if we can start understanding the nature of who we are, understanding the nature of ego. The ego is not necessarily a static thing. It's really a process of identification and holding and that we're not it. Then it starts to change our relationship with ego, not as that's me. And so if I'm curious or let go, then I am dying. I am not going to exist. It's like, oh, there's patterns and I'm not those patterns. And so when we start to kind of, cultivate a different understanding of like, oh, who, who am I? Am I those feelings? Am I those thoughts? Am I the Th- then that starts shifting our relationship with our ability to also let go of what we thought we were, but we're not.
1: I love that. And I, <clears throat> I always uh, tell clients that they should read the book, The Surrender Experiment by Michael okay. Have You I've ever heard, heard of that? It's, I've heard of it, yes. Yeah. So and it's really speaking to what you are, too. And I think that most of us have a very hard time getting out of what we think we're supposed to do. Like I was saying, you know, like as a kid, well, your parent wants you to do this. Your parent wants you to do that, but it's really, well, what is your intrinsic motivation? You know, what is it that drives you? So, you know, before we wrap it up, what I'd love to hear are, you know, for people out there that are struggling, most of the people in my audience, by the way, um, Mm -hmm. are, are having relationship issues. They have insecure attachment and things like that. So, you know, what would you say to them in taking the steps when you have a lot of anxiety, okay, when you have a lot of resistance to, let's say, letting go of someone letting go, letting go yeah. of something, you know, what are some tips and things that you would say to them that could help them?
2: Yeah, you know, I think sometimes when people hear the word surrender or let go or, you know, go into the unknown, we, 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 we can judge ourselves a bit harshly and force ourselves like, why am I not surrendering? And that, that creates more anxiety. And so I would just start by saying, notice where you are and be with where you are. And if you're not, if you're finding that you're not surrendering right now, like that's okay. And, and even surrendering to not being surrendered right now is okay, rather than like, I'm not surrendered, and why am I not surrendered? It's like, just being with like, okay, I'm not surrendered right now, and let me be with that, because part of the reason we don't surrender is because that 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 the ego, right, is trying to protect us and keep us safe and prevent us from getting hurt, so, so to force that process is actually a deeper resistance. The deeper surrender is to notice it, to be with it, to notice that I'm not surrendered and to notice that and be with that. And I think the ability rather than forcing it, which creates more anxiety and more stress because, well, I should be surrendered and I Mm -hmm. should let go and I shouldn't have this anxiety. It's like to meet that non-surrender with surrender of just compassion
0: Mm.
2: and loving Mm -hmm. and gentleness, because then when we can hold the, 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 non-surrender and the holding on and the attachment with acceptance. It's like, okay, I'm not surrendered. And it's okay. Then that part of us that is not surrendering and resisting for a reason, Mm -hmm. for a reason, can maybe begin to just soften a bit and soften a bit, gently and soften a bit and feel safer. And then we can kind of slowly explore some of the feelings underneath that as to why is it holding on? And then gently surrender can begin happening just in an organic and natural way, not a preconceived idea of like surrender now. And so sometimes a a deeper level of surrender is to surrender to not being surrendered and to meet ourselves there with the compassion and loving.
1: I absolutely love that. And I think that that is key because I think that a lot of messages people receive in our society is that you need to hurry up you need to get through this yes right yes yes
2: yes yeah. so
1: i think True. that's that's so helpful and you know i've loved having you on i feel like we could keep talking for hours at this point <laughs> um i'd love to have you back at some point anytime anytime awesome awesome so thank you and where can people find you and what do you have available you know do you have any programs or anything that sure
2: have- yeah straight straightforward uh, The book. The Magic of Surrender, available on Amazon. I go kind of deep into the process of surrendering. It's a very easy read. Uh, my website, kutblackson.com, K-U-T-E, blackson.com. Um, twice a year, I do a deep, immersive, transformational event that is that really takes people through working through the internal blocks to letting go and surrendering and letting go of the past, connecting more with one's authentic nature. It's a it's a really life-changing 12 days. That's in Bali. It's called Boundless Bliss. Uh so www.boundlessblissbali.com and then also Instagram and Facebook.
1: Awesome. Well, I again, thank you so much for joining me thank and you. all of your wisdom and your experiences in life, I know are probably resonating with everybody listening. And with that, everybody, if you have any questions, please send them in and we will definitely make sure they get to cute. And of course, if you find wherever you find the video, you can always leave questions there and we will get those as well. So, again, thanks guys for tuning in and we will see you next time. Take care. Bye bye.
0: For more information about Tracy and her programs and to set up a discovery session, email happiness at tracycrossley.com that's happiness at tracycrossley.com or go to the website for more information and thank you for tuning in to moving on